Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, I'm so excited today because I've been dying to get this topic onto the podcast. Uh, we have with us today Chris Hayward and Orsa Svensson, hosts of Flatpack History of Sweden. Alina's only just got the reference. Hello. <laughs> how are you doing? Where are you serving out lockdown um, and how is it going? We are in South London and it's fine, apart from the fact that now it's getting quite warm and our flat is quite uh, sort of a tinderbox it gets warm very quickly but apart from that not too bad yeah no do you have to uh, do you have a garden you can retreat to like a shared garden or are no, you just stuck we don't. in uh, so it's, it was lovely when we were allowed to go out to the park more uh, mm. sort of where we retreat to yeah but that's yeah. only two minutes away so it's not too far oh so it's that's essentially good. a shared garden <laughs> oh brilliant okay right I, the first thing is you do any bit of Swedish history, but I specifically asked you straight away to do this. I love this guy um, just because <laughs> I read all about him in uh, Robert K. Massey's book. So I just, it, it's going to keep coming out of my mouth as Charles the 12th because uh, that's how he wrote Warrior King, bear pushing legend. Um, Alina is just mystified as to why I'm so excited. So you start us off, Alina. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea, but at least you said the correct uh, the correct number of uh, of the king, unlike me. Well, there is any. no correct number, as you're about to find out. Oh, okay. okay, it, okay. The Swedes like to mess with you, Alina. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Okay, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I can follow this. But there we go. Anyway, so was, who was he? Well, first of all, for a start, he wasn't actually the 12th King Charles, was he? No, he was the sixth uh, legitimate king of of Sweden uh, under the name of Charles, or as he's known to to me, who is Swedish, in Mm -hmm. in Swedish he's Karl. So he's he's Karl the Twelfth, and this 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 complete bogus. And basically, a couple of generations before him, uh, the royal family wanted them wanted to make themselves look a bit cooler, so they semi-invented and used these mythological kings that they thought had existed before them and counted them into the actual uh, line of sovereigns and thought, oh, well, it makes us look cooler and more legitimate and stronger if we have a higher regnal number. So uh, that's slightly mad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not into fact checking at all. They just well oh, now we are now we're this person. Was so, the Daily Mail behind this by any chance? <laughs> could be, but <laughs> that's what makes 
uh, our guy, uh, Carl or Charles, that's what makes him the 12th. And actually, it was subsequently decided just to ignore this, and it continues into today. So the current king of Sweden uh, is a man by the name of Carl uh, um, the 16th, Gustav, but he's not the 16th either. He, it, he it continues on with these made-up numbers just because it's thought that kind of now it's too late to change. I suppose there's a point to that. But when was he born? Um, and yeah, tell us a bit about him um, as a young man, uh, specifically the anecdote about the bear and why he didn't <laughs> yes. drink. Yes, <laughs> so the bear is excellent, but he has to be born first. So he's born in uh, June of 1682 and he was the only surviving son of his father, also a Charles, Charles XI. He sort of grew up, he was a very militaristic family. He could ride a horse when he was four and really well when he was eight. A lot of the stories are a bit like Kim Jong-un in that way, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and he could, he shot his first bear when he was 11 and then a stag. And when he was growing up, his favorite subjects was building model fortic- fortifications and trenches and having two lessons a week, supposedly, and sort of military tactics yeah. when he was just six years old he's definitely described as this wonder child this protege genius especially when it comes to militarist military things and whether how much of that is true it was certainly something that was focused on his his father charles the 11th had essentially made Sweden into a military dictatorship by, by that time. So how much of it is actual fact and then how much of it has been added on to glorify him later on? There's probably the truth lies sometime, somewhere in, in between. Yeah. And I think one story before the bear is that apparently he could uh, speak Swedish and German very well, but he was quite stubborn. And when his tutor told him he should be learning French as well, because how great would it be when the French ambassador comes, you speak to him in French? And Charles said, well, if I was going to meet the French king, I'd speak French, but the ambassador coming here should be able to speak to me in Swedish. So no, I'm not going to learn French. So. That's quite a good point, actually. Cheeky, yeah. cheeky. really cheeky. Something that has uh, continued into Swedish life today. I, as a Swede, I find it quite, quite rare that I could insist that someone else speaks our very difficult minority language and that we, we tend to learn to speak English or something else to communicate. So I guess good on him for standing up for the Swedish language. Absolutely. So he's on the throne at 15, isn't he? And then yeah. comes the bear. Yes, and then comes the bear. So he was, he was very religious, he was very pious, and he didn't like this luxury and alcohol and all this kind of thing. But then he seemed to have had his sort of gap year, almost, the way you could possibly <laughs> describe it in a Monday sense, when his cousin and soon-to-be brother-in-law, uh, Frederick IV of Holstein, had come up to... Stockholm to marry his elder sister. Uh, that's Charles's elder sister, not his own elder sister, which would be a bit weird. Well, um, never yeah, and so this Duke Frederick was 10 years older than Charles and he was a real wild guy. And they basically got together and they spent the whole summer, um, everything from running through the streets in, of Stockholm and ripping off wigs and hats and throwing cherry pips at the King's ministers and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, apparently, 
sometimes even chopping the heads off animals and throwing them in the streets, but that seems to be one of these exaggerations. And then after the wedding, this guy goes home, back to Holstein, but then a year, um, two years later even, he comes back. No, the next summer, sorry, he comes back, and then this is where the bear happens. Um, Carl, or Charles, is drawn back into this crazy lifestyle, and supposedly they get drunk, really drunk, into the palace, and there's a bear there somehow. Don't know who got the bear. (laughs) Where it came from. Yeah, (laughs) And, and they think, well, we're both drunk, the bear should be drunk too and feed the bear all this wine, force feed the bear wine. And then either they push the bear out or the bear falls out of a window and dies. And he's so mortified, isn't he? That he just, that's it. No more alcohol. That's the end of the gap year. Yeah. The gap year is over and he goes back to his pious ways, but supposedly he only drank alcohol after that. um, Like a tiny bit after if he won a battle, which he did occasionally. And also the one time that he got wounded as well, he supposedly said, oh, just give me a beer. But <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> Frederick, Frederick of, I think Frederick of Holstein, uh, his cousin and brother-in-law, is partly to be blamed for, for this. He seems to have been a very bad influence on the young, pious king. Drove him to hell-raising. Can we just go back just a little bit? Because I have no idea about Swedish history. I am like in the dark right now. So can you tell us a little bit about what Sweden was like at the beginning of the 18th century? Yeah, so the beginning of uh, the 18th century, Sweden, first of all, we should say that it looked slightly different than what Sweden looks like today because it included Finland. So the country was really this horseshoe shape around the Baltic Sea and the Bay of Bothnia. So uh, Sweden then consisted of what is modern day, both Sweden and Finland. And Sweden then also had territories dotted around pretty much all of uh, the Baltic Sea. So what is today uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, parts of northern, northern Germany. And to the extent that you could say, and certain people did definitely say at the time, that the Baltic Sea was essentially just a big Swedish lake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, they have an empire, don't they, at yeah. this time? She's the dominant power in the Baltic, Sweden. Uh, Riga, which is the modern day capital of Latvia, was the second biggest city of Sweden uh, at the time, uh, which I, I, I we, we went to Latvia uh, the other year and it was quite cool to see the Swedish uh, historical resemblance there mm. well they still have one the big one of the big sort of stone ceremonial gates in the old town is still called the swedish gate oh yeah. brilliant <laughs> so it was a much bigger country and looked different from from what it did today uh charles's predecessors especially his dad had essentially built up this military machine uh and it was an absolute monarchy uh, there's a Swedish historian, uh, Dick Harrison, who's compared Sweden at the time a bit to like the military dictatorships of Latin America in the late 20th century. The, the military juntas, you know, obviously 100 years apart, but that was the kind of state system almost that, that was in place. And you, both of uh, Charles's predecessors, his dad and his grandfather, had spent a huge period of time doing these things which are called reductions in Swedish, which he basically 
gone to all the rich nobles and said, we're having your land and taking it as properties of the crown. So a bit like Henry VIII and the monasteries, sort of just going to private or religious land and saying, yep, that's ours now. Mm. And the, the peasants and the working class people actually really liked it because they didn't like the nobles and the elite but also the monarchs would sell the farmland back to the peasants at a really cheap value. So they would support the monarchy and have their own land and start to become more efficient farmers and, and all that sort of thing. So it's directly strengthening the monarchy, but also strengthening the, the working classes as well at the same time. It's smart. Um, but in the Baltic, uh, you have got at this time an absolute force of nature emerging, and that is Peter the Great dragging Russia up by the collar, basically, and mod- making her come into the 18th century and join the modern world. Uh, and that's going to affect Sweden, isn't it? Definitely. And I think Russia has always been the not, I don't want to play fast and loose with the term like arch enemy. Yeah. But it's always been the big, scary neighbour, right? It's been like us and the French, hasn't it? Yeah. Like, you've always been at each, at each other. And this is something that continues, I mean, way into the modern day and sort of into our lifetime with the Cold War and relating to, to that. But, uh, yeah, like, just like you said, Peter the Great, modernising, uh, unifying Russia means that uh, Sweden had a real um, strong enemy right at his doorstep and as we'll see when Sweden gets a young king Charles XII is only 15 when he ascends the throne then uh, Russia's ready to pounce. Yeah and one of the big things that, that Russia really wants at this point is they want access to this Swedish lake of the Baltic because there's no there's no western port for Russia at that time and so Peter wants to get access to the economies and potential for war in the West. And he has no access to get his ships through the Baltic and to wherever they want to go. So there's been lots of toing and throwing over those Baltic ports between Sweden and Russia in the, the previous years before Charles becomes king. So now Carl is associated with the Great Northern War. What caused this? And when did it start? So, um, yeah, this is the thing that he's probably best known for both in Sweden and outside of of Sweden. Um, All this has been accumulating for the last hundred years or so. Sweden has been back and forth with the other arch enemy, which is Denmark, um, which at the time, most people just say Denmark, but it's also Denmark and Norway. They were a joint country with a joint monarchy. And there's Swedish islands that go to Denmark and come back again. And Southern Sweden, which is now, when you look at Sweden on a modern day map, it kind of makes sense in the sense that the the continent comes down and that's all part of Sweden. But where Orsa is actually from, that southern part of Sweden only became Sweden um, 50 years before the Great Northern War started. So Denmark and Sweden were all fighting about this um, really important part of the territory in Scandinavia itself. And then there's Poland and Lithuania and Saxony, they're getting agitated because Sweden's still you know, kept on to this territory in, uh, in the Baltics, in Livonia and Estonia for a long time, and then add in Peter as well. You've got these three big powers surrounding Sweden that are looking at the opportunity of Charles being a young king and not really sure he hasn't been involved in the war before. Maybe all that uh, studying he's been doing actually doesn't result in a good leader. So taking advantage of that to sort of 
hack away at the, the rump of the Swedish state. Yeah, Sweden had grown quite quite big. It had a lot of enemies in its neighboring countries, like Chris had said that it had taken land from and this kind of this trio of Denmark, Poland, Lithuania and Russia now saw its chance to to take on Sweden when it had a when it had a young king. They absolutely get more than they bargained for, though, don't they? Yeah, because, I mean, I'm absolutely not a, a general, um, despite reading things like Klaus Witz and things like that. But um, they, they don't seem to really coordinate very well, for a start. Um, so Denmark just sort of goes for it, whilst uh, Peter's still involved in a war with the Ottomans. And they just, they just go for it. And Sweden comes in as this amphibious landing in the north of Denmark, which actually helped by uh, Britain and France. Uh, Britain and the Netherlands even. And they win a, a crushing victory straight away. And Denmark's out of the war within the first few weeks. And so the, the Poland and Lithuania and Russia are, are sitting there like, oh, um, great, thanks for that. <laughs> you've started the war and you've, you've just lost and surrendered and, and got out of the war within the first few weeks. So that wasn't too great. And then Poland and Lithuania, there's a few uh, little battles in the Baltic uh, before... Peter can finally get himself clear from the Ottomans and actually send his troops westwards and into the Baltics as well. So it's, yeah, there's not very much coordination. And also Charles, if he gets a chance, he's sort of like, let's choose to fight. We'll sort out the strategy when we get there. Let's just go. He's really famous for this sort of quick thinking and making decisions, just getting stuck in. And yeah, sort of, we're, we're sort out how to win the battle when we start the battle. He also has his army organized in quite an interesting way and unique for the time. Basically, his army was organized into regiments that corresponded to uh, regions. So, so to translate it to modern terms, each county would have a regiment. So everyone in that regiment was from the same geographic areas. And that continued when it was broken down into platoons and divisions that was they were organized along the lines of where it was from which ultimately meant that often soldiers were fighting next to their best mate next to their neighbor next to the people they had grown up with and shared a a culture a regional culture with and that's something that later on historians have analyzed and said could have been a decisive factor in why the swedish army was so efficient the soldiers were so willing and had such sort of uh yeah panache yeah and it's, it turns out slightly better than the powers battalions did for great britain much later on in history <laughs> absolutely so can you tell us more about the battle of narva and its consequences yeah the big the the big battle the the success yeah, um, so this is when um, Charles has just beaten the Danes and um, he finds out that Peter is on the way towards Narva, which is uh, site of another famous battle much later on in the Second World War because of its strategic location right on the edge at this time we're talking about of Sweden and Russia. And uh, Peter finds out, uh, Charles finds out that Peter's arrived and he again 
don't think about it. Let's just go straight away and get everyone to Narva right now. Ends up getting there in, it's November. It's horrendous weather as um, Charles seems to end up fighting in a lot of the time because he doesn't seem to care about this wintering business a lot of the time. He's like, no, we'll fight in winter. It doesn't matter. So he arrives at um, Narva when the Russians have three to four times his size. They, they're digging in because they're sieging the town and it's, they're, they're properly prepared and the Swedes turn up. And when, when they arrive, Charles says, right, we'll get into battle order. We'll line up and prepare to fight. But there's this huge snowstorm that is a blizzard, effectively. It's going around. Nobody can see what's going on. And they're, all, they're just standing there and the generals of Charles are telling him, okay, let's just stand down. We're going to um, winter quarters and we'll sort it out later on when we can actually see what we're doing. Um, but Charles, is, he says, no, we're standing out here and we're waiting. And um, then the snowstorm shifts and the snow ends up blowing right into the faces of the Russians so they can't see anything. And this is when Charles says, right, we're going now. And they attack this force that's four times the size of them and basically, yeah, just smash them for um, a number of reasons. One is the fact that Peter isn't actually there. He's left the day before and in charge, he's left this person, which um, I've read as a lot of about in the sense that, oh, he was such, it was very stupid to leave this guy in charge. It was a uh, field marshal, um, Charles Eugene de Croix, which is a French name, but he's a German slash Russian. And he'd fought against the Swedes um, in a really famous battle 25 years before. So he was no mug, but he didn't speak any Russian. He'd uh, only been given charge of the army the day before, and he'd never fought with Russian troops. And so this, is, this doesn't really lead Oops. to a... a yeah, it <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's not the best. It's when you get a... Um, it's a supply teacher. Yeah, it's a supply yeah. teacher. <laughs> a supply teacher from another country who has never taught in your country before yeah. and doesn't speak the language. Whereas, Sounds like the government's coronavirus <laughs> response at this point. Whereas on the Swedish side, we have Charles, who likes he he likes to be in quotation mark one of the man, one of the men. He dresses like a soldier. He becomes famous as being called the soldier king. He's, He's in soldier uniform and he, he leads the troops from the front, uh, really. So there couldn't be a bigger difference in terms of leadership between these two armies. Uh, Charles is really involved and he's right there bringing morale to, to his troops. Yeah, and so much so that um, after the Swedes have taken the, sort of the, the bastions, um, they move forward and the Russians, because... A lot of them, uh, which is also a recurring theme throughout history, a lot of them are just conscripts who don't want to be there. And at least three quarters of the Russian military, effectively, after almost 20 minutes of the Swedes being in amongst them with bayonets, start and run. And only two, um, two regiments of what would become the, the Russian guard stay in their battle order. And they sort of, they rebuild in a square formation, prepare to receive the Swedish troops. And Charles himself, charges at them with his men and he actually gets his horse shot out from underneath him and so he's always he's not one of these um, generals sitting at the back with his table set up and maps and things and pointing at things in the distance he's he's 
frequently very nearly killed. And um, that's just a symbol of his, his leadership. And so eventually the Russians panic. They run away. As they run away, they cross this bridge that then collapses. And it's, it's just basically a calamity. And so I wouldn't have liked to be there when Peter found out what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I think heads probably rolled. I can't remember off the top of my head. But so Charles, sorry, Carl, I'm getting there, is still right. 24 years old, and yet he's eliminated the opposition uh, for good reason. How much of a hero is he in Sweden at this point? Well, it's, it's difficult to, to judge in, in hindsight what, what the average man or woman in, in Sweden at the time uh, perhaps w- would have known and how detailed the information was that was spread down but there's lots of paintings made uh, plays are written poems are written so definitely in the sections of society that had access to to these things and could perhaps read and write and so on news spread relatively fast and it, he was uh, really worshipped as a hero and then that would trickle down through sort of church services and so on down to to the ma- to the masses and especially um his fellow soldiers the the regular infantrymen and things like that adored him so they would have not that many of them got a chance to go home but once they would have got a chance to go home they would have spread the news themselves certainly again back to the historian i mentioned previously uh, uh, no sorry not the historian i mentioned previously another swedish historian Hermann Lindqvist he was once asked sort of how Charles Carl XII could get so many men to rally around him. And as we will see in a minute, when things start to go badly, no one or very few of his soldiers ever deserted. He had, had an incredibly loyal following. How is that possible when soldiers were essentially marching to, to their death? And the answer that, Lindqvist gave was that Carl Twelfth never said go, he always said come, because he was always at the front. He never told his men to go ahead of him into the battle. He went first and said come with me. And, and, and that, that's a leadership style that I, I obviously don't condone all the battles and all the violence and the war, but that, as a, as a leadership style, I mean, was clearly successful then. And personally, I think that's a great leadership style now. Yeah, or rather, probably now it's don't go. Stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but clearly. Stay at home. <laughs> so history hasn't been kind to armies that march on Moscow, as we very well know. Um, but he did, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing we could almost state as a fact in history is just don't invade Russia in winter. In fact, be very careful before you invade Russia in general, because like you said, it tends to not end well, and it didn't end well for, for our man, Carl XII. And, but one of the things is, is the fact that the, the, probably the biggest, well, one of the, the biggest mistakes that Karl makes is that after Narva, when the Russian army is either dead in the river or running away, he, he doesn't follow after them. He doesn't go to get that knockout blow and maybe get Peter himself. He spends years and years dealing uh, and meddling in the Polish-Lithuanian local politics. And 
his uh, cousin, uh, Frederick of the Booze fame, was killed in a, art, by artillery in a battle two years later. Another battle. He's gradually losing his men and he's losing a lot of this um, sort of like capital that he has in, and the opportunity to go and get Peter. But eventually he sorted out the, the Polish situation and he's put a, a puppet king on the, the Polish throne and feels like he's now I've got his um, like his rear protected yeah. enough that he can go to Russia. The, but, last, the last enemy left. Yeah, the last enemy left. But um, yeah, he go, he goes into Russia and he picks the coldest winter in five hundred years to do it. So oh dear. the great frost of seventeen oh nine. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One thing I do remember about what you're saying about the gradual erosion of his men and that is that the problem for Carl is replacing those men because Sweden has the territory but not the population, does she? Yeah, definitely. Like even when we talk, what I said in the beginning that Sweden was much bigger than what it is today. It was an incredibly uh, sparsely populated country. I don't have off the top of my head the number of inhabitants, but I think it was somewhere around two million. Yeah, I just remember that he was. There was a huge problem for him once he lost men. There was not a ready supply of them to come into the army. I mean, he basically bled the country. Um, dry of yeah. men of fighting age, didn't he? Definitely, and there was a demographic consequence of that for for subsequent generations, where there were low fertility rates in Sweden because you tend to need boys to make babies. But yeah. um, that's, that's a later consequence. So yeah, like I said, all this meddling in Poland and Lithuania really uh, depletes the army when they are then going to go for the juggler in russia so that is really the killer isn't it this is peter's finest hour comes at poltava if you could tell us about it um in the ukraine now Um, but it's not uh, when it's kind of like it was ready for charles to win at at narva um but poltava it was really set up for peter's victory wasn't it it's not as impressive as it sounds this storming victory no probably not it's the the result is massively successful for Peter, but the actual uh, way of doing it probably isn't. Um, there's, there's a lot of internal um, sort of like Swedish alliance politics. Um, uh, Charles and Carl go south because they believe that there's going to be one of these Cossacks, this guy called Ivan Mazeppa. He um, was under Peter, but wanted more independence for his Cossack group. 
And so teamed up with Charles and said, I'll, I'll give you 30,000 soldiers. I'll come and join you uh, in your fight against Russia if you come southwards to Ukraine. And he turns up and this uh, Ivan guy had uh, slightly overestimated the amount of men that he would be able to bring in. And instead of 30,000, it was only about 1,500. Mm-hmm. So Charles has been wandering through all these scorched earth lands of Russia mm-hmm. and not being able to feed his men. There's the great frost and they turn up and yeah, he decides the only way I'm going to be able to feed my men is if I attack this fortress town of Poltava. And um, it's one of those really sort of epoch defining yeah. uh, moments in Swedish history, effectively, um, that it gets to a point, everything's going wrong. Um, Charles, like he always does, is out uh, doing reconnaissance before the battle and he gets his first and only real wound that doesn't kill him. Um, he gets his foot almost shot off uh, a couple of the days before the battle. And um, in his typical fashion, apparently he was lying on the bed and said to the surgeon, oh, just slash away, slash away, cut it out. It'll be fine. And, <laughs> and, which is, yeah, which is an um, admirable quality, I guess. When or someone... stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, it, it leads to um, probably one of my, possibly my favourite character in uh, Swedish history, this field marshal called Carl Gustav Renfeld. He takes over and he's given a lot of the blame in some uh, Swedish yeah. history books. But like the uh, Russian general at Narva, he's been through so many wars you can't count. He's a field marshal and he can actually speak the language of his troops. He's and, just a wizened old fighter, isn't he? Yeah, he knows what he's doing. And effectively, there's this, uh, the Swedes try and do a sneak attack and they're discovered and they have to put everything into this all-out assault on these uh, 10 Russian redoubts. And there seems to be a little bit of confusion. Some of the Swedish men didn't know if they were supposed to bypass them or storm them and they get caught up on one of them and it turns into a killing field effectively. And um, then Peter um, isn't really involved in this fighting at the start. He's sitting in his fort um, you know, a, a little while away. And then when the battle starts going well, he rides out of the fort with his 20,000 men and uh, delivers the, the killing bow. And the, because Charles was on his, he was being carried on the battlefield in a litter and there were over 20 men carrying him and a cannonball comes in and goes right through the whole mess of these men, and there's only three left. And he's sort of still there, and even though he can't walk, he's been carried up to the front lines of the battle in a litter, which is unbelievable. You'd be really pissed off if you were the guys carrying him that got killed, though, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. There's, there's no dodging or getting behind cover if you're carrying him. You can't just him. drop him and run. No. And, and so Charles does manage to escape, um, but uh, Renfuel is captured along with a guy that I've been down one of these Wikipedia rabbit holes. There was a Baron Hugo Hamilton, which is a Scottish Baron of Sweden at the time, who was fighting in the in the Swedish military, and his whole family seems to have emigrated to, to Sweden a couple of decades before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's, uh, it's, a, it's still a noble family in in Sweden, the yeah. Hamilton family, which is very interesting. Yeah. But um, and yeah, so. It's the Swedes were never going to win. They only had um, twenty thousand ish of their men left um, from all the attrition and the, and the winter. They left some of them still sieging Poltava. They left some of them still 
carrying the baggage train. They ran straight at the Russian guns in true Charles style. And the, the overwhelming odds of the Russians were not not never going to lose, but it was an expected victory. I think. Mm. Um, can you tell us about Charles in Exile? Yeah, this is one of my favourite uh, periods because I, I think Charles in, in, this, in his period in Exile is a little bit like, you know, your mate who comes back with you after a night out and then you like, you have some snacks and it's, it's quite fun, but then you want him to leave and he doesn't leave. Like he's just there in your flat at 3.30, drinking your leftover wine and eating your snack and you just want to go to bed. That's what Carl, uh, Charles kind of turns into when he heads to modern day um, Moldova, actually, or modern day, what was then the Ottoman Empire, uh, to, find, uh, to find exile with the, uh, with the Sultan. And... Yeah, so he's taken in and um, only 1,500 of his men make it down there. And they're just sort of having negotiations with whether or not they're going to be let in. And Peter turns up and takes out even more of them. So there's only there's a, there's a couple of hundred of Swedes who are left to be taken in uh, by the Sultan. And there's lots of negotiations between Peter and the, and the Ottoman Sultan about whether or not they should give up Charles. And event, the, the Sultan doesn't give up Charles, which is, um, for Charles' sake, very good. And he funds... So Charles is there for five years in exile, living in the... Ottoman Eating Empire. the snacks and drinking the wine, yeah. yeah. There's a few snacks. And this is paid for by the Ottoman state budget. And um, there's eventually... Like, they had to build up a small town or a small village for all the Swedes who were living there called Karlstad, like Charles Town. Yeah. And... Yeah, they're just living there for forever, and he's just sort of oh, some well. weird like eunuch town as well, because there'd be no Swedish women, would there, or well, were there followers? They, they sorted that out by bringing okay. in some Swedish women, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> and, armies at the time they travelled with a huge baggage train. The armies on the move in um, the 16th, 17th, 18th century were mm. like little towns. So in the baggage train, there were like everything from cobblers to uh, butchers. butchers and a, a fair amount of both wives in, uh, to, the, to the officers, but also a, a significant number of prostitutes. So eventually during the exile, they make sure that some of these women of, of, all, of all kinds, some of them have been taken as prisoners by the Russians, but they buy them out just to make sure that they that they too can come to uh, come to the Ottoman Empire, come to this Swede town, Karlstad, and keep the men company. It's like the Costa del Sol, the, the Swedish equivalent <laughs> in the Ottoman Empire. It's yeah. mad. <laughs> Eventually he does very much outstay his, his welcome in the Ottoman Empire. But what I find interesting is that they're there for so long and eventually they rack up this huge debt. So when they eventually leave, all this Turkish or Ottoman uh, merchants and lenders show up in Stockholm, be like, hey, can we have our money back, please? You wrecked our place and stayed at ours for years. We want our money back. And this means that Sweden, which is a strong, strongly Protestant country, Protestant Christian country, for the first time has to change the 
rules and regulations around foreigners of other religions living in the country. So essentially, thanks to Charles massively overstaying his welcome in Turkey, we get our first uh, kind of traces of multiculturalism in Sweden when, uh, thanks to this Turkish influence, and we can see traces of that today where a traditional Swedish dish, which is uh, meat wrapped in cabbage leaves, is also a traditional dish in Turkey. You've got a feel for the Turks as well, because knowing that Sweden has no army and is clearly on the decline now in terms of an imperial force, there's not a lot of motivation to spend a fortune on Karl, is there? Yeah. No, and, and they end up um, not just evicting him, but there's this, this thing that's called like the skirmish at the amazingly named place Bender, yeah. um, which is what Charles is probably doing for five years. But... Um, they, they essentially siege the, how, the big sort of townhouse that he's in and they're fighting in arm, uh, hand-to-hand combat with Charles showing, no, I want to stay. He's like, no, you are going to leave. We're dragging <laughs> you out. And apparently he got his, his eyebrows singed after the Ottomans set fire to the house. Yeah. <laughs> so. So, like, a bit, it's not until is it after the skirmish, as it's called, or ruckus is perhaps a better word, it, skirmish in Bender, which... You want to? You can just Google it and read more about it. It's a it's crazy town, but it's not until after then where yeah the the Turks have literally smoked him out that he finally gets on a horse. He's given safe passage. Is there not? And this is right at the back of my memory. I have a vague recollection of Charles or Carl riding from the river bug to the baltic coast in like seven days to get yeah. his mojo back and like you said he makes his way to the baltic sea lighting doesn't sea. stop basically yes yeah. he's on the horse traveling the whole time and again like almost all of his travels um he turns up um he turns up in um swedish owned northern germany the last little bit that hadn't been lost um throughout all the all the great northern war so far and um, he spends about a year there, then goes back to Sweden and he, he doesn't go back to Stockholm. So the last time he saw Stockholm was at the start of the war, nearly 20 years before. He leaves Stockholm when he's 17 and he never sees it again. It's mad. Who was doing all the kingly work at home for him? Well, n- n- no one, which was a problem <laughs> in domestic Swedish politics, but there is sort of, there is a caretaker government that deals with, obviously, domestic affairs was a much smaller deal at the time because we didn't have a welfare state and and whatnot, but there is a caretaker government with some high up lords that make sure the taxes are leveraged and collected and those kinds of domestic things. But they send, they send messengers, certainly at the start of the war, they keep sending Charles messages. And he's like, your highness, can you please sort out this, make a decision on this, make a decision on that? And he's like, no, 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 I'm fighting a war here. And he had this guy called Carl Piper, who was sort of like his head civil servant with him throughout all the battles. And he was actually captured at Port Harbor. And he, w- he was uh, making some of these important decisions and sending it back to Stockholm. But... 
Charles, a lot of the time, just said, well, I'll deal with it when I've won the war. How, you know, how important is it if you want to build a new theatre or build a new road <laughs> from Stockholm to Gothenburg? We do it when we're on the war. <laughs> so it's very, very odd in that sense, I guess. But yeah. a real indictment of his focus on the here and now, the battlefield. Tell us, what's the result? I mean, like, what happens to the Swedish Empire? Well, it... it, it, it slowly collapse like a plan in a cupboard (laughs) Sweden has lost the vast majority of its uh, overseas territories so by the time Charles stepped foot on on Swedish soil uh, again and he heads to the town of, of Lund he he left as I said a 17 year old uh boy with a Baltic Sea Empire and he returns the worn man who's well into his 30s and has lost the majority of uh, the Baltic territories. So uh, Sweden hangs on to what is modern day Finland uh, because that was considered Sweden proper. It wasn't a territory that was actually Sweden proper Uh, but it's lost all of the uh, territories in what's today modern modern Germany. It's lost. Uh, yeah, the Baltic states, yeah. modern day Baltic states, and it's, it's all gone. Um, yeah, and then he ends up. Um, even though he's back, there's no, there's basically no military left. He still keeps fighting for another another two years. He he uh, sets his focus back on Denmark and Norway, who have come back into the war after they've seen Peter do all the all the winning for them. They're yeah. like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, right, let's let's come back in. Let's oh, we... kick them while they're down. <laughs> yeah, and and that that um, it doesn't really go very well. I think there's a good. I like to um, compare him a little bit with um, Richard the Lionheart in the sense that he's done all this amazing fighting in in Russia and in the Baltics and he ends up dying in some nobody little conflict in a town that nobody can remember and it's that's really part of his legacy as well yeah it's ignominious isn't it he's like he literally does he not just like stick his head up over a parapet yeah yeah he's killed uh in what is modern day Norway because as Chris was saying when he's back in Sweden uh he deserves that Sweden has been invaded by the joint Denmark-Norway forces. So he heads towards uh, Christiania, which is the modern-day Oslo, now capital of Norway, with a relatively small army, 7,000 men. And it's when he is um, getting ready for battle at the fort in, in Halden, uh, that he is inspecting the trenches. He sticks his head up to um, have a look. To, to have a look, and as it was described by an by an eyewitness, uh, another soldier, he said it sounded as if you clapped your hand. There is a shot that has rung out, and uh, he's he's hit in the head. And dies pretty much instantly. Uh, instantly. Mm-hmm. But it's in battle, isn't it? Which I suppose there's no other way for him to go. Yeah. yeah. So there's pretty much ever since there's been, a, call it a discussion or call it a conspiracy theory around his death. So was it, I was like, did he die in ba- battle? The battle hadn't actually started yet. 
was sort of sort of the night before, and he was expect um, inspecting rather inspecting the the trenches. But was it a sniper bullet from the Danish Norwegian forces that you know they saw his head popping up and and they fired, or was he in fact murdered by one of his own? Was this someone in the Swedish army that was just so sick of all of war that that they killed him? Mm. But I think modern history has come down pretty conclusively on the side that he was killed in battle. This was an enemy bullet. But for hundreds of years, I mean, the poor guy has been dug up out of his grave like more times than I can remember. I think there's been four official grave openings well into the 20th century where they've dug him up, examined his skull, examined the bullet, and they've not let they've not let this go. And there's so much literature in Swedish about uh, about his death. And um, what is Charles the Twelfth, Carl the Twelfth, not the Twelfth? Uh, what is <laughs> this man? What is his legacy in Sweden now? Well, I think he's he's got this. He is this military figure. He is this, um, you know. I guess you also would say more about what's more in like sort of contemporary, like sort of growing up culture. But he he's portrayed as this sort of ever victorious general, even though he lost massively. And because there were so many battles that he took part in before Poltava, I think he fought in sort of twenty five or twenty two battles that he was in, and every single one he was at the front line, bayonet in hand, stabbing people and everything. That that image is resonating more in the modern day and the controversy around his death much more, I think, than the, oh, well, it was actually you that threw away the empire. I don't think there's that. I don't get that impression. No, it's it's interesting. So when I was in school, we were taught sort of a handy trick for remembering this, what's known as the Swedish Baltic Sea Empire or this, this empire period. And we would we were taught, as to remember it, we were taught that uh, Carl X created, Carl the Carl XI maintained, and Carl XII um, destroyed. That was the sort of that was the timeline of the Swedish Empire. Three kings: one created it, one maintained, slightly expanded it, and one, our guy Carl XII, uh, sort of slowly. Um, uh, slowly destroyed it or lost it uh, rather but it's going to be another almost 100 years it's uh, Finland uh, stays Swedish up until 1809 when it's again lost to Russia uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's, it doesn't all go go away uh, what I'd say someone who's grown up in Sweden unfortunately Today, part of his legacy is a bit tainted by um, association to the far right and Swedish neo the Swedish neo Nazi mm. uh, movement that have like ultra nationalist kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, oh, that's a shame. Unfortunately, these groups tend to do. I think not just in Sweden, but mm. across the world, they they hijack uh, historical figures and hijack history. And, and make it into something it's not and uses history to legitimise their own warped nationalist ideology. So 
the extreme right does use him as like look at this like this is when we were the 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 powerful white obviously you know prime uh army and there's a statue of him in central stockholm that unfortunately occasionally becomes a bit of a hub for um far-right extremist marches and and so on that's a real shame because that's not what he was about no not at all and i said partly he brings in the first traces of multiculturalism yeah in sweden but that, that that's a very unfortunate legacy of him through no fault of his own but mm. he's also inspired uh, i know chris you love that has nothing to do with uh, far right and neo nazism that his uh, his battles have become the theme of a swedish metal band and their <laughs> their album yeah, sabaton have a whole album about this entire period in swedish and in english if you want to listen to yeah, <laughs> educational exactly if, if any of the history hack listeners are are metal heads or heavy metal fans check out uh, what's the yeah. album called sabaton Coralus rex is like i can Latinized. think of at least two and one of them is swedish and probably has this album already yeah. so. <laughs> no the sabaton if, if if you they are like the golden mix of history and metal music they have a youtube channel where they do a history videos and it's so good and they so have one about Poltava which is very they're good. really so good as well they do Polish history too oh we should get them on guys thank you so much for coming on to talk to us it's about a- Carl the 12th it's been brilliant it's been a pleasure really thank you so much for having us on in in our own podcast uh, we do uh, Swedish history chronologically and uh, we're in we're in the Viking era now so listen to a fat pack history of Sweden at the moment we're all about the Vikings so it was so much fun to take a massive jump yeah (laughs) well now you've done when you get to this in like years time you'll be like oh yes we've already done the prep we'll just play this on repeat probably uh but it, it was great to take a you know jump a couple of hundred years forward and and read up on this you know pretty extraordinary guy he only lives till he's about 30 five mm. seven and uh, packs everything in packs packs a lot in didn't have a lot a lot of time for romance uh unfortunately he never marries and has no children but yeah far too busy um <laughs> well i did railroad you into this topic so um please do come back uh, with something of your choice as well because we'd love to hear more about swedish history Oh, oh, thank we, you. We'll, we'll think of something. Yeah, definitely. And good luck with your upcoming interviews. Join us tomorrow to find out what happened when Alina and I went on a mission to make church history fun. We found Emma Wells uh, and we are going to discuss with her medieval people and their obsession with relics, how it came about, how they did it, where they found them, what kind of nonsense was involved. And then we also are going to do some church architecture with us because apparently there's quite a few naughty bits of architecture lying around that you can go and see after lockdown is done. Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. 
don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders indeed the regulations are very clear in the matter it is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 